It is a blessing to be able to worship with you. It's great to have each of you here, and it's always great to have guests with us, but I do just want to take a moment. Last week we celebrated, we had some guest missionaries with us, and I'm going to do the same thing with them that we did with the Bagleys, where I just had them stand and wave at you guys, but uh, I have some great friends that are here with us today. Dan and Joy Irvin, would you stand up for us just so everybody can see you guys? Uh, they are missionaries to Haiti. And I have had the privilege of being in Haiti with them on multiple occasions. What a blessing to have you guys with us today. I believe they have a family member that's going to be ordained this evening as well. So great to have you with us. As we gather together today, as we celebrate what God is doing, there are great things for us to look at. There are things that as we celebrate, there are things that we do different than what we used to do them. And today I want us to begin a series entitled Myths of the Church. And as we look at different myths of the church, one of the myths of the church, the first one we're going to look at is the idea that churches change because of a lack of spiritual maturity. There is this idea that if a church decides it's no longer going to do a specific ministry, well, then the church must be somehow less spiritual than they were a generation earlier. An example might be, which by the way, I have no desire to see this change in our church simply because it is going very well. And I think Al Malasso does a fantastic job with our Sunday school ministry. However, many churches have gone away from having Sunday school on Sunday morning. And our first assumption is, well, if change is taking place like that, it must be because the people are simply not as spiritual as they once were. That is a myth of the church. By the way, it may be that they're not as spiritual as they once were. However, it is not a guarantee that that's the reason. In fact, often change takes place all around us and we simply don't recognize when it's happening. Mark Twain is credited with saying that the only person who really likes change is a baby with a wet diaper. And there is a lot of truth to that. It's something that few people enjoy, but something that is always happening around us. I was reading recently a quote from a man named Donald Saul. He was addressing a group of businessmen and he said this, most leaders today recognize that the future will differ profoundly from the past and that competitive formulas, the way they used to do them, that led to earlier success can lead to future disaster. In other words, if all we do is the same thing we did yesterday, eventually what worked yesterday won't work today. Now, some of you are probably already thinking, well, Pastor, that's for the business world. We're not a business, we're a church. And I would simply say first that the principles that we can learn from others without us having to make the same mistakes are invaluable. The second thing that I would say to that objection is whether the business world knows it or not, that statement actually is very biblically grounded. And we're going to look at that a little bit this morning. A few weeks ago, I referenced in passing an extraordinary event in the life of the church. The church was still in, in, in its infancy, and an amazing thing was taking place. Although Jesus had been crucified, people were still being healed. The word of God was still being preached, and thousands of people were coming to Christ every single day. That's a pretty amazing thing. 
It was an amazing time, but it was primarily a salvation that was being offered to the Jews. The one exception to this would have been Philip, who he was led by the Spirit to a place called Samaria. And he brought the gospel message to the Samaritan people. That, even though they weren't necessarily all Jews, at the same time, the people of Samaria were known for actually being uh, intermarried with the Gentiles. So they were Jews and Gentiles. And you could almost excuse it because, well, they're part Jews, so, so that's acceptable. Then Peter has a vision in Acts chapter 10. He's up on his roof. He's hungry. It's almost lunchtime. Some of you guys are thinking, you got it, Pastor. Hurry it up. Suddenly he's in a trance and he sees a large sheet that's being lowered down from heaven with all kinds of food. And he hears a voice from the Lord telling him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. It doesn't sound like a big deal to us because we tend to eat just about anything. But to a faithful Jew, this was an abomination. Now, not an abomination, although some would say an abomination is an abomination as well. The law stated that there were certain animals that were clean, and then there were certain animals that were unclean. A good Jew would never, ever eat an animal that was considered unclean. There was this idea that not only did it possibly carry some sort of disease, but in addition to that, God had simply instructed them, don't do it. So you would never do it. In fact, when the Lord tells Peter in this vision to get up to kill and eat, Peter very quickly objects. No, Lord, I have never eaten anything that is unclean. At first, Peter is not really sure what to think about his vision. It seems that the only thing Peter really knew was that God was about to do a new thing, and that new thing might push the envelope a little bit further than what Peter was willing to go. Shortly thereafter, while Peter is still wondering about his visions, there's a knock at the door. There he finds three Gentiles who invite him to come and to share with a Gentile named Cornelius. God tells him to go, and he does. But I want you to catch the significance of what he does. Connecting this to the vision that he's just had of the sheep being lowered down from heaven with clean food and unclean food. Just as there were foods that were clean and there were unclean, there were also people that were clean and were unclean. Among the Jewish people, the only people that were considered clean were fellow Jews. Not just fellow Jews, but fellow Jews who were in good health. For example, if there were a Jew who had leprosy, he was no longer considered to be clean. It had to be individuals who seemingly had the blessing of God upon their lives. Who was not unclean? Gentiles were unclean. Gentiles were basically viewed as the enemy of God. Let me, let me just kind of demonstrate this to you. The enemy of the Old Testament people of God was typically associated with Babylon. It was a place that horrible acts of immorality took place. It was a place where constantly the people of Babylon, the Babylonians were at odds. It seems as though there was always a battle that was about to take place between Israel and them. They were considered Gentiles. They were considered unclean. Well, there is no distinction between Babylonians and other Gentiles. 
basically the Gentiles were the enemies of God. They were unclean. So for Peter to travel with these three Gentiles would be a big deal. Moreover, for Peter to enter the house of a Gentile and then to share with him about Christ, it would have almost seemed blasphemous. After all, Jesus was a Jew. He came for the Jewish people. He was even labeled as the king of the Jews. Certainly, Peter is acting outside of the boundaries of the faith. He is definitely not doing things the way we've always done it. So we pick up the reading this morning in Acts chapter 11. I ask if you would to turn in your Bibles with me. We're just going to look at the first three verses. Acts chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. As we look at this passage, I want you to see how openly the church embraced what Peter did. How excited they were that Peter would go to the home of a Gentile and would present the gospel message. You got to think about it. As you're turning, just consider here, wouldn't we be excited to know that people outside of the church were hearing the word of God? Wouldn't we be excited to know that the body of Christ was reaching out to those who were so in need of Christ? And of course, that's what the New Testament church does too, right? Acts 11, beginning in verse 1, says this, The apostles and the brothers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, You went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. First thing I'll tell you is as they criticize him, he knew what he did. He knew that he had pushed the envelope a little bit further than where he had gone before. But I don't think he really cared. Word apparently has spread very quickly that Peter had shared with these Gentiles Part of it is because if we were to look deeper in Acts chapter 10, you'll find that he actually brought with him six fellow Jews. And of course, when he arrived, there was a house full of people at Cornelius' house. It wouldn't take long for word to spread. You can't keep something like that a secret. Well, as word has spread, anger and frustration has also very quickly developed among, quote unquote, God's people. These Jewish New Testament believers are so angry over what Peter has done that they would confront him. They would stand up to the one who was viewed as, in many ways, as the father of the New Testament church. Remember, it was Peter who stood up on the day of Pentecost and proclaimed that Jesus Christ was alive. He was the one who brought the message that morning, and thousands of people gave their heart to the Lord. Peter would have been looked up to as the father of the church They had to be pretty angry to stand up to him. They stand up to him. How could you, Peter? You went into the house of these uncircumcised men and you ate with them. What were you thinking? Now, based on their complaint, it would seem that they're not really angry over the fact that the word was being spread to the Gentiles, but rather over the fact that in order for the word to be spread to the Gentiles... Peter didn't do things the way they thought they should be done. What are you doing going into their house? 
Sure, the Lord wants them to know of his goodness, but they're unclean, Peter. You can't do things that way. That's not the way we've always done it. It was the fact that he associated with the Gentiles. He went into their house and he ate with them. Now, I also would like to add something here. While the Jewish culture had such a hatred toward Gentiles, God had historically been compassionate toward the Gentiles. Perhaps the greatest example of this is the story of Nineveh, where Jonah went to the people of Nineveh. Jonah did not want to go to the people of Nineveh. Part of it, again, is because he was a clean Jew and the people of Nineveh were not. The people didn't necessarily want God to minister to the people of Nineveh, but God cared about the people of Nineveh. That is typical of his character. God sent Jonah, a reluctant Jewish prophet, to Nineveh, an ungodly Gentile city, to proclaim God's judgment and call them to repentance. He wanted to see them turn from their sin so that they could be redeemed, even though they were Gentile. Well, if God cared about the Gentiles in Nineveh, why should it surprise the Jews that God cares about the Gentiles during the early days of the church? So they complained to Peter. What are you thinking, Peter? Well, Peter walks them through the whole story, tells them about the vision that took place while he was hungry and he had this trance and the sheet was lowered down. He goes through the whole story. Humorously, I try to picture the individual responses of those who were present that day among these elders. According to the passage, they came in not with questions toward Peter, but rather a complaint. That means that prior to Peter's explanation, many of them probably had already made up their minds that what Peter did was absolutely wrong. Maybe they've even talked about it with others in the group. We call that gossip when less spiritual people do it, but I'm sure they looked at it as just a spiritual discussion. Was there some self-righteousness present in that room? Well, Peter, don't you know that that's not the way we've done things in the past? I wonder if there wasn't a sense of arrogance as they accused Peter of breaking from tradition and law. Was there that one guy who stood in the back of the room with his arms crossed. And he was patting his foot the whole time. Peter, what do you have to say for yourself? But as Peter shares with them, the walls begin to come down. I wouldn't say they felt like scales from Paul's eyes because that would happen very quickly. But it does seem as though their complaints do start to turn to a sense of surprise. These men were so adamant that God can't work in this way because it's not the way we've done it before. But God says that he can. Look at the end of Peter's explanation in Acts eleven fifteen. It says, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning. Then I remember what the Lord had said. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift as he gave us, who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think I could oppose God? It's a pretty logical statement. Then we see their response when they heard this, 
they had no further objections. And they praised God saying, so then, God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. God was doing a new thing in this New Testament church that really wasn't all that new in the first place. I shared with you earlier that Jonah was a great example of that. God had always been about redeeming mankind, always. But the Jews believed that God only wanted to redeem them. Consider the words of Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 30 to 32. It says, therefore, O house of Israel, I will judge you. Each one according to his ways, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent, turn away from all your offenses. Then sin will not be your downfall. Rid yourselves of all offenses you have committed and get a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? And then this is the, the last part of this is the, the part that I almost picture the Israelites sweeping under the carpet. He says, for I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent and live. This was not something that was uniquely offered only to the people of Israel. God wanted redemption for all of humanity. When Jesus Christ came as a sacrifice, it wasn't just for the Jewish people. It was for all of creation. It's always been God's heart. The same sentiment is repeated again later in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, where Peter is talking about the promised return of Christ. And he says he is patient with you not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone. That means every living person to come to repentance. This idea of repentance and grace for everyone is all throughout the scriptures. Oddly enough, the time would come later where the church would once again have to address this issue of including the Gentiles. Acts 15 tells of a time when the church would debate as to whether or not uncircumcised Gentiles could truly be considered a part of the church. Paul and Silas would share with the elders, and once again, it would be Peter who would step up to the plate and declare that the act of circumcision isn't what saved anybody. It was God's grace. He says in Acts 15, 11, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. It would seem that following this council, the church would reluctantly allow these Gentiles to be included, but no doubt it was still somewhat uncomfortable to the traditionalists of the group. Why? Because it wasn't the same way we've always done it. Let me suggest to you that just as God was doing a new thing with the New Testament church, God desires to do a new thing with the church today. I'm reminded of a hymn that we used to sing when I was a child. It's entitled, Old Time Religion. It said it was good for Paul and Silas. It was good. I'm not going to sing it for you today. It was good for Paul and Silas. It was good for Paul and Silas, and it's good enough for me. 
Other verses included, it was tried in the fiery furnace three times, and then it was good enough for me. It was good for my mother. It was good enough for me. It has saved our fathers. It, was good, it is good enough for me. Makes me love everybody, and it's good enough for me. What is it? It was good enough for my mother. What saved my father and is good enough for me? The answer to that question is the message of Christ. Remember the words of Ezekiel? For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the sovereign Lord, repent and live. Generations earlier, the author of 2 Chronicles would reveal God's message, stating that if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. In the, New Testament, in the New Testament, the message from John the Baptist would simply be repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, is near. Later in 1 John 1, 9, John would declare that if you would confess your sins, he's faithful and just, he would forgive you of your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. And it would be Jesus who would declare that he was the only way to salvation, the only way to forgiveness, the only way to eternal life, the only way to the Father. The message does not change. What was good for Paul and Silas? What was good for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace? What was good for my mother? What was good for my father? The message does not change. Jesus Christ is still the only way to salvation. However, God is doing a new thing. God will provide new ways to reach new people. And instead of us fighting when the opportunity comes for God to do such a thing, let's rejoice over the fact that God is moving. It's funny that Dan and Joy are here. I was reflecting this week on an experience when we were in Haiti and, uh, I was preaching to a group of people. It was a fantastic environment. This was, would have been probably my second trip to Haiti. It was after the earthquake that took place. And I had the opportunity to preach in a service where I was told right before I got up that every individual that was present that morning had lost either a sibling, a child, or a parent. Every single person. There were probably, and you know how pastors are, we always exaggerate the numbers a little bit, but it looked like at least three or 400 people there. I don't know. So I got up and I preached through an interpreter. The interpreter did a great job. And I'll be honest with you, I think he made up for my shortcomings in the sermon. I got done and I, I went and I sat on the front row and he continued to interpret as individuals would speak. And he was telling me everything that was being said. And all of a sudden he just stopped. And I looked over and I, I said, what did he say? He said, I don't want to tell you. <laughs> The district superintendent had gotten up and basically he said, it is hard to imagine that someone dressed like that could deliver a message like that. I was dressed similar to the way I'm dressed. Now, by the way, and Dan and Joy can confirm this, I don't care what time of year it is, it had to be in the 90s. And everything's outdoor. There might be a covering, but you're outdoor. I was hot. I, I had sweat pouring off of me. His objection was the fact that I was not wearing a suit coat. Understand this. 
If I don't dress the way a preacher did in a previous generation, it does not diminish the message that is being presented. <laughs> I sat with a district superintendent from the state of Tennessee, and he shared with me, he said, I would love to have you come and serve in our district. He said, but it could never happen. I said, why? And he said, well, because you still wear jewelry. And the people in our district simply could not handle that. Why? Because there was a time that even the entire Wesleyan church almost seemed to think that jewelry was a sign of immorality. It was too showy, too flashy. Today, there are pastors, youth pastors, senior pastors, who when they put shorts on, you see a tattoo on their leg. I remember I had a young man, he was from my youth ministry in North Carolina. We had gone to Colorado Springs, was serving as a pastor out there, and he called, and he had graduated from Southern Wesleyan University already, and he was interested in a job with me at the church. Wanted to be able to be under me in the ministry. And I remember what he said. He said, Pastor Mike, I'd like to be able to come and work under you. He said, I'd even be willing to take out my earrings. And you know, there are an awful lot of churches today that simply could not accept him based on the fact that he had an earring or the fact that he had a tattoo. And God says, I'm far more concerned about the message than I am the method. I'm far more concerned about what's happening inside people's hearts than what's happening on the outside of people's bodies. I'm not telling you all to go out and get a tattoo this week. I'm not telling you to come back all and, and we'll show off our piercings next week. But what I want you to realize is that God is far more concerned with what's happening in our hearts than he is anything else. For some of us, change means, what are we gonna do with the music? What are we gonna do with the building, with the facilities that we have? And God says, who cares if it helps you get the message across? Praise the Lord. Change, it's not necessarily a bad thing. I sat in a meeting this past week with a group of area pastors. We were looking at the possibilities of providing an area-wide revival to this community that would not highlight a particular church, but rather it would only serve to point people to Christ. In concept, it's a great idea. I can remember days of great revivals taking place in the church where you'd have a guest speaker who would come in and he would stay in my generation, maybe a week. I know of others who they'll talk about a speaker who would come and revival services would last for sometimes two, maybe even three weeks. Great times where the Holy Spirit would be poured out and people would be drawn to the church and to Christ. And, and I believe that God, just as he has done it in the past, that he can do it again. I do believe God could work through such an event. But as we shared together, it seemed clear that God may want to do something a little different than what we've seen in the past. Do you remember a couple weeks ago, again, dealing with Cornelius, I shared with you guys the idea of a Cornelius project where we would uh, open up our homes, invite our friends and our family, just like Cornelius did, and then we'd tell them, hey, when you come, I want you to meet the pastor. I want you to meet a Sunday school teacher. And then you let the pastor or Sunday school teacher then share the gospel with all your friends and family. And maybe you even get the opportunity to share your story with them as well. I don't know if that's the route that 
the area churches will take, but that is one of the things we're looking at. The possibility that every church in this community could open up their homes to where people could actually introduce their friends and their family members to Christ. And then maybe instead of having a week-long revival where you have a guest speaker come in, maybe instead we have a moment of celebration where we have a huge feast. We have people share their stories. Maybe we even baptize a few people along the way. Wouldn't it be just as powerful of a revival if it happened in people's homes as it would have been had a guest speaker come and done all of the revival work? Is it somehow less valuable because it happened in homes and not with a great preacher standing up in front of you? Of course not. Who cares how it happens? If revival takes place, we ought to celebrate. We ought to rejoice over it. God desires to do a new thing. Does it have to be the way we've always done it before? One of the possibilities for this church, there are actually two. I don't believe there's a third. One possibility is that we continue to do things the way we've always done it. I will tell you what will happen is we will continue to move along where we're at. There are some good things. We have a great heritage. This church, I was thinking this morning about some of the pastors, thinking about Malcolm Ellis and the fact that he's physically uh, deteriorating. This church has a great heritage. Let's celebrate that. But let's be open to the moving of God to move forward because that's the other option. I don't want this to be a church where 10, 15 years down the road, people look and they say, what happened at Trinity? There was so much potential, so much opportunity. Why didn't it ever happen? I pray that God will do miracles in this place. Maybe he'll do some of them the same way we've always done it. But maybe he's going to do a new thing. Are you okay if that happens? If God's the one who's doing it, I sure hope the answer is yes. If you would, bow your heads and close your eyes with me. Father, as we come before you today, well, we are so honored to simply be a part of your work. As we talk about this new thing that you desire to do, Lord, I pray that you would help us to be open to whatever you would lead us to do. Lord, I thank you for the community that surrounds us. I thank you for those around us who do not yet know you as their Savior. You have entrusted them to us to go out and to reach into their lives, to love them, to introduce them to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you would fill us with your spirit, and if you choose to do things in a brand new way, in a way that we never would have thought of, help us to simply be willing to say, yes, Lord, I will go. I'll do whatever you want. But I pray that as you pour out your spirit on us, that we would be so overfilled with your spirit that we would begin to splash out on the community around us that the moment people came in contact with us, the Spirit of God would literally splash onto them and they would hunger and thirst for more. 
Lord, I pray that you would move in such a mighty way that there's no way anybody could give us credit, but rather we would have to give you credit. But I pray just as you moved Peter, move us. And we'll give you praise for what you do. In Christ's name we pray, amen.